Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode and happy new year. I hope that you had a really, really lovely Christmas time and festive period with your family and friends. I'm super excited that the podcast is back this week and it is a incredible episode if I do say so myself it is with Dr Rongan Chatterjee who I know many of you already know and love he is a GP he's a dad of two and he's arguably one of the most influential doctors in the country I was so excited to chat to Rongan partly because I listen to his podcast every single week so I feel like I know him and also because his philosophy on wellness and change and human behavior really 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 align to my own so I was super excited that I got to sit down with him last month and chat all things change so it's new year it's the 2nd of January likely we are being bombarded with messages about new year new you you might have set some resolutions well i'm really hoping this episode is going to help with that because what rongan and i talk about is how to actually make changes that stick not changes that by the first of february have totally gone by the wayside so we chat about how a traumatic event with his son at six months totally changed his life forever. We talk about his philosophy around changing our habits and why it's so hard. He talks about how the brain works that makes it so hard for us sometimes to change. And his philosophy in his new book, which is called Feel Better in Five. So it's essentially about doing just three things a day for five minutes each. So in 15 minutes a day, how to totally change your health, your well-being and your mindset. And Rongan takes us through some of the things that are in the book, some of the things that we can be doing. It's super simple. It's super accessible. And I really hope it's going to encourage you to rethink those big, lofty New Year's resolutions that we're so tempted to set. And of course, never achieve or rarely do we achieve them and then we end up feeling rubbish about ourselves and no one wants that so i really hope that this is a timely episode for you and it's going to help and also just to tell you again about my perfectionism course so i know linked into new year's resolutions can just be this sense of not being enough feeling like i need to do all these things in order to be enough And that's really what my perfectionism course addresses. It helps you uncover those beliefs around yourself not feeling enough and therefore wanting to show up all the time as perfect or someone different than who you are. So if you want to be calmer, kinder to yourself and feel freer and happier, then this is the course for you. It's a self-study course. It's 20 days and it's 10 minutes a day. So it's really aligned with Rongan's philosophy So if you use the code MOTHERKIND10, then you get 10% off. It's just £54. And for everyone that I sell, I am giving one away. So here is the episode. Well, Rongan, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you very much for having me. I have to say, I've been buzzing all week about this conversation, partly because I'm a massive fan of your podcast and I've learned so much from you, from listening. And also, I just love your message. And not only do I love your message about health and root cause, but I love how simply you express it. And I just think it's such a skill. So I feel really excited and a little bit nervous to speak to one of my podcasting idols. Oh, well, please don't. Look, I'm first of all, super grateful that you listen each week. You know, we've just been hanging out, chatting for the last 10 minutes or so, and it's just fun to meet you. And I think we're going to have a fun chat. Yeah. So obviously, as you know, this podcast is all for parents and mums. And it was actually becoming a parent that led you down this slightly different track, wasn't it? Can you tell us a bit about that, about what happened with your son and how it started to think about functional medicine? Yeah, so I guess how long have we been practicing for now? Almost 20 years? Wow, 20 years is almost 20 years as a doctor. And I think early on in my career, I was getting a little bit frustrated. I didn't realize why I was getting frustrated. With hindsight now, I think a lot of the time as doctors, we, you know, we try and medicate symptoms with drugs. And I think that is indicated in some cases, but in many cases, I think we're dealing with lifestyle related issues and we're trying to treat them with drug solutions. And it never has quite sat right with me. I wasn't able to articulate that that clearly when it was happening. I just knew something didn't feel quite right at work all the time. And then when my son, so my first child was six months old, he nearly died basically. My wife had been breastfeeding him for six months and we went on holiday to France just after Christmas. Then we went on the 27th of December. And that evening, he basically had a convulsion. He stopped moving. My wife called out to me. She's like, wrong and wronging, come over. You know, he's not moving. What's going on? And I thought that he might be choking on phlegm because he'd had quite a bit of mucus that day. I thought he had quite a bad cold. I turned him over. I tried to slap his back, clear his airway. Nothing was happening. And to be honest with you, in that moment, I wasn't a experienced doctor. I was just a worried dad. And my wife said, come on, we've just got to go to the hospital. And so we rushed to the hospital and I still remember so clearly that the nursing staff, the medical staff were really worried because you can have a convulsion as a kid at that age, but it's normally associated with a fever. It's what we call a febrile convulsion. You know, a lot of the listeners may have heard of that. That's actually okay. We know why you've had a convulsion. It's because of the fever. If we bring the fever down, everything will be okay. But he had no fever. He had to be blue lighted down the valley. We were in a mountain hospital down to a bigger hospital so they could start investigating what was going on. You know, he had two lumbar punctures that night, x-rays, lots of blood tests. It all felt surreal. It was like, we're a pretty health conscious family. What on earth is going on? And it turned out a bit later that evening, maybe four or five hours after we took him into the hospital, they said, yeah, we know what's going on. He's got a very low level of calcium in his blood. That's why he's had a convulsion. And the reason for it is because he's got no vitamin D or very, very low vitamin D in his body. So essentially, I mean, I could talk to you for two hours on what happened, but essentially my son nearly died from a preventable vitamin deficiency. And I, with all my so-called qualifications, was unable to prevent that. You know, I've got a degree in immunology. I've done my specialist exams. Uh, it's called the Member of the Royal College of Physicians. I've done my exams for a Member of the Royal College of GPs. With all these kind of letters after my name, I simply was unable to prevent this in my own son. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that, if I'm honest. And that guilt has driven me on to doing what I do today, really. My vow I made to myself, let me be very clear, modern medicine saved his life, right? He had a convulsion. He had infusions to actually 
get him back, right? But then they were going to discharge him. And I said, well, hold on a minute. I'm reading about this vitamin D and it looks as though this is a critical nutrient for his immune system. Maybe he's been deficient his whole life. Maybe he was deficient in utero. And they said, oh, no, no, you know, there was no help for that. It was kind of like, just go out now and get on with it. And I'm thinking, well, hold on a minute. Maybe this is why my son's got eczema. Maybe this is part of the reason why this is going on, et cetera, et cetera. So my mind started working as to why has this happened and what are the implications of that? So literally in that moment, I had a vow to myself, right, I am going to get my son back to full health as if this had never happened. Right, and that was guilt, if I'm honest. It was guilt driving that. And I would read three, four, five hours a day on the internet or papers about vitamin D, the immune system, nutrition. And the more I read, the more I was like, how come as a doctor, I know nothing about this? How come I didn't learn anything about this? And the principles I learned, I applied with my son. He is a thriving nine-year-old boy today. The principles I learned, I applied with myself, my wife. Now, you know, my subsequent daughter, we're all in great health, we're thriving. And I apply the same principles with my patients. And I've got to be honest, I've never used as little medication as I do these days, not because I'm anti-medication, but just because I'm now much better able to look for the root cause of a problem and help someone identify what it is, and then most importantly, give them some simple, actionable steps to start resolving it. So yeah, I guess you've got many parents listening to this, many mums who listen to your show. And I've got to tell you, you know, I've gone through a lot in my life at various points. I was a carer for my dad for 15 years, which has hugely influenced me as a doctor and how I view things. But I've got to say, you know, when you face with the prospect of losing one of your children, it changes you. You're not the same person afterwards, right? You look at things in a different way. And that was probably one of the most significant events of my life, completely understandably, but it has completely changed the path I've taken for my career. I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today with you know, the TV shows or the podcasts or the books, I'm not sure I would have been doing that had my son not gotten well. So I have this clash in my head. Well, it used to be a clash. If I'm honest, I've done a load of work on myself over the last few years. I know we're both fans of Gabo Mate. Big fans. You know, and that's the kind of work I do on myself regularly, you know, to try and figure out my patterns, why I behave a certain way, why do certain things that the kids do trigger me? right? It's not because they've done something. Mm. It's because it's triggered something in my past that I've not resolved, right? And so by doing all of that, I've actually realized that the guilt that drove me down this route, it was guilt that I potentially hadn't done the best for my son, that actually I had somehow messed up by not preventing this from happening. That guilt drove me to where I've got to today. But at the same time, that guilt is no longer serving me. It's not helping me be the best dad that I can because he doesn't need a dad who's guilty, right? He just wants a dad to be present and playful and just be there for him. So I've been really working on that. And I, and I think I pretty much let go of pretty much all of that guilt and it feels good. Mm, well, I often say, because mum guilt is such a huge thing. And I often say to mums that, you know, ask me about it or I work with, were you doing the absolute best that you could with the knowledge you had? And the answer is always yes. So then there's no guilt. And I always say as well, I don't believe that things happen for a reason, but I think you can make a reason out of things. And I think oh, I that's that. what you've done so fantastically because you've taken this really traumatic thing that happened to you and you have served, I mean, must be millions and millions and millions of people now with such helpful tools and a way of looking at medicine. And I had, I just share with you quickly, I had exactly the same. My daughter had really bad eczema and 
one of my best mum friends is actually a consultant dermatologist. And so we were putting, you know, all the different steroid creams, nothing made a difference. But like you, because I think about things, I guess, slightly differently. I thought, no, no, what's the root cause here? And did loads of research, went to see some amazing practitioners, took her off dairy. Yeah. And it's gone. And I said to my friend, very gently, because it can be a tricky conversation. It can be a very tricky one. Do you talk about nutrition when you studied to be a dermatologist? And she said, no. I really, really had to bite my tongue, if I'm honest, because I thought, God, it's for me, it's so clear what's going on here. The amount of patients who got the same story when they eliminate dairy, their skin problems get better or their child's skin problems get better. why are dermatologists not taught this? You know, this is something I'm trying to address. Let me explain that in two ways. The first thing I was going to say there is that you've got to understand there's going to be people listening to this whose kids have got eczema, mm-hmm. right? Eczema at its very root level is a dysfunction on some level of your immune system. Yes. It's just misfiring in a particular way, which is why steroids are used, because steroids suppress your immune system. So steroid creams often will work for eczema. Not always, but they often will work. But they're not getting rid of the eczema. They're getting rid of the symptom of the eczema, which is the rash. It's not doing anything to address the underlying issue that might be going on. Now, sometimes we can't find out what that issue is. But I know that even as a GP, we see a ton of skin conditions. And many of us, our first line is, oh, so rash, we need to give some steroid cream, right? It is amazing how much of an influence food can have on people's skin. In some cases, not in all cases, some cases it probably doesn't make a difference, fine. But I think before we go down the route of medicating people, should we not at least try these things? And dairy is a very common one. Now, again, I would tell people, try it for a couple of weeks, see if you notice the difference. If not, okay. doesn't mean it's definitely not the issue, but it's probably not. So people get worried about removing things from diets. You've always got to say, you know, if you're going to do that, maybe talk to a healthcare professional to make sure you don't have any deficiencies. But the reality is, I think most parents and most children would prefer the option of at least excluding a food for a couple of weeks just to see. And as you say, you found that with yourself, right? And it's... Well, I can't tell you the difference it's made in our lives because she would hate having the creams on. That would be a disaster every night. She'd be screaming because yeah. she said it hurt. And now she sleeps through the night. She's not waking up scratching. And that's what I love about functional medicine and yeah. the root cause is that it solved something for us yeah. that made our lives You're empowered. easier. I'm so empowered. You're empowered. Do you know the beautiful thing about it is? Obviously, I don't know your individual case, but most people, when this happens, they're no longer having to use oh God, the doctor said I can't have dairy. You know, it's very hard to live a life like that when somebody else is telling you you can't do something. But if you experience it for yourself, if you or let's say your daughter starts to see the connection, oh, every time I have ice cream, my skin flares up. Oh, you do that a few times, you go, you know, I don't like my skin flaring up. Actually, maybe I'll stop having the ice cream. It's a different dynamic And my approach with everyone, my approach in every single book is not to lecture people, it's not to tell people what to do, it's to help empower them. And if they experience a change for themselves, they're going to want to keep doing that behaviour. That's why, you know, we're talking about your new book this morning, that is what I just love, 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 love about it. We were talking a bit about the start. Thank you so much. Because what this new book does is it says, really, the way to become healthier in any aspect of our lives can be done in three chunks of five minutes which is just such an empowering, positive message, especially for really busy parents, right? Yeah. Because most plans, you talk about it in the introduction, why do most, I'm going to get healthy, New Year's resolution, you know, buy the app, get the book, get the diet plan, why do most things like that fail? Well, that's a big question, right? Why do most plans fail? 
And there's a couple of reasons why they fail. The first one is, is that they rely on willpower, right? They're trying to sell you that actually willpower is enough. Motivation is enough. You know, 1st of January, we're all motivated, right? We've all seen January the 1st, 2020. Okay, this is going to be the year where everything's different. I'm going to do things in a way that I know I've said it for the last 15 years and I didn't manage to do it, but this year is going to be different. Now, if we don't do anything differently, why are we expecting a different outcome? It's going to be the same as it always was. So we think motivation is enough, but it's very clear from the science that motivation comes in what are called waves. Professor BJ Fogg, who's probably the world's leader in behavior design, in fact, Instagram was an app that was basically was come up with in his class. It was an assignment for his students. He has had such an influence on so many things that we do on a daily basis, but he's an expert in human behavior. He calls it the motivation wave. Motivation comes and motivation goes, right? If you think motivation is going to be enough to keep you consistent with your changes, you are setting yourself up for failure. Now, I'm not saying motivation has no place. Of course, we need a little bit of motivation, but we shouldn't rely on it too much. And I think that's why most plans change. They work beautifully well for the first two weeks of January. But when life gets in the way, when, you know, your kids are up three times in the night and you're knackered and you know what you should be doing, but all you want is just to sit there with a cup of hot chocolate and a packet of crisps, right? That's what you're going to do. And I get that. So I think motivation willpower is one thing. The other thing is we've made it too complicated. Let's say it's a workout plan. The idea with a workout plan is, you know, you've got to go 30, 45 minutes, three, four times a week. You've got to fit it into your day. You know what? Again, for two or three weeks, you might manage it. Can you manage that long term? Probably not. So a lot of these plans, they don't follow the rules of behavior change. It's the first thing. The second thing a lot of these plans do is they don't take a holistic view of health. So if you are just trying to change your diet and you just focus on your diet, but you haven't taken into account your stress levels, again, it's going to have very limited effect. So January, a lot of us are trying to reduce how much sugar we're taking in. We're like, you know what, I overindulged over December and Christmas and New Year, right, I'm cutting out sugar. Okay, so you try. First week in January, okay, second week in January, okay, but then what happens? By the third week, oh, it starts to slip back in, and then before you know it, we're back in our old habits by the end of January. Now, why is that? Well, there are many reasons for that, but a lot of us don't identify, we don't look at the stress in our life. So what if you're using sugar or alcohol for that matter, as a way of relieving the stress in your life. Well, yeah, you can try and reduce your sugar, but you haven't dealt with the root cause. If you don't address the stress, you're never going to change the behavior. And this is very, very common. How many of us emotionally eat? How many of us, when we've had a crap day, when we've come over and we're tired, we're a bit stressed, we go for sugar. I know I do, right? I'm really conscious about my health and my lifestyle, but I'll do that as well because that's one of my sort of default programs. So by understanding that, you can start to address your stress levels, which without you even trying, will start to reduce your sugar levels. And that's why my program in Feel Better in Five addresses three different components of health, mind, body, and heart. You can't just look at one component in isolation and expect long-term change. Health is a combination of multiple factors. You know, circling back to your original question, we make it too complicated. That's why they don't work. We think motivation and willpower are limitless, which they're not. And we only focus on one aspect of our health rather than all the different aspects. And I think that's why many of these books fail. Yeah, I've experienced all of what you were talking about in terms of, you know, I've done the eight week quit sugar plan, but it was only when I 
you know, really address the emotional eating that was sitting underneath it, that I'm then able to, and I still have that urge, of course, but then I'll take a mini check-in and think, oh, hang on, am I avoiding a feeling? Am I stressed about that email that I've got to send? What's really going on before I grab that? That's interesting to me. So can I ask you a question? It was your show. You do a mini check-in with yourself. So what does that look like? And is it easier for you to do that now than it was, let's say, two years ago? Yeah, well, it's a habit now. It's a habit. Yeah, so I'll notice a craving for sugar or crisps or something. I'll notice the craving and then I'll think, it's that microsecond before I grab it, so from the fridge or the cupboard, and I'll think, oh, hang on a minute. Not every time, maybe eight out of ten, I'll think, what's going on here? Wow. I'll just take a pause and I'll think, do I really, what am I avoiding? And do you know what normally it is? It's normally something that's tricky. It might be a boundary I need to set or someone said something that's triggered me or there'll be something that I'm wanting to numb or avoid. Yeah. I I so resonate with that. I mean, I think that is common for me. That is common for so many of my patients. Actually, the driver behind so much of our behaviour is emotions. Yeah. What are we hiding from? I mean, I would say all. All of it. Exactly. What are we numbing? Yeah. And that's why knowledge doesn't always lead to action. Well, I always say to my clients, the greatest distance you'll ever travel is from your head to your heart. Yeah. Because we all know this stuff, right? We all know it's not good to like binge on 20 digestives. Yeah. But feeling it in your heart and being able to understand it and integrate it is a totally different ballgame, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And one of the reasons why I think people struggle with this is because we're so busy, right? We don't have a minute to ourselves anymore. Many of us, we wake up first thing in the morning, we're picking up our phone. And before I go any further, I'm not criticising anyone for doing this. I also will do this from time to time. And it's something I constantly have to work on as well. (laughs) If the first thing you do in the morning is look at your phone, you know, when it wakes you up with your alarm, you go straight up to social media, straight up to emails. You're literally reacting to whatever the world wants you to look at all day. For many of us, that goes on all throughout the day, all throughout the evening, and it's still going on when we're in bed in the evening. We're still lying in bed, having all this coming into our head. We've got no downtime. We've got no downtime to actually start thinking about our emotions, thinking about actually, oh, how is it that I'm feeling? And that's one of the reasons why in Feel Better and Five, I've sort of covered mind, body, and heart, is to give people a bit of downtime. A lot of the mind interventions will help you clear your mind a little bit, help you get in touch a bit. Some of the heart ones also do the same thing. And by making them only five minutes long, it's almost deceptive. It's almost like, well, what can you really do in five minutes? You can do a lot in the five minutes. I actually guarantee if you do five minutes, consistently every day that is much more powerful than doing one hour every Sunday it's those little things that you do on a daily basis that make all those big results and you start to build momentum when you do that and I say to people now get really really good at doing the small things and the big things will take care of themselves so true it's so true one of the ones that I love in mind is the five minute journaling tell us about that one because I'm everyone knows if they listen to the podcast I am like obsessed with my journaling practice so tell us about your one well journaling can be helpful for so many people but like can I just sort of set out the framework so it's super clear so in feel better in five every single recommendation that I make takes a maximum of five minutes that is it there's about 50 different recommendations now all I'm asking people to do is choose three right so it's almost like a recipe book of health snacks or health interventions and all you have to choose is three one from mind one from body 
and one from heart. And you literally do the same ones every single day. I mean, we could talk about habit formation later if you want and why you do the same ones every day. But you can look at all those mind ones. There's meditation, there's five-minute breathing, there's five-minute yoga, there's five-minute journaling. You choose whichever one you want, right? There may be many you want, but I'd say start with one and do it at the same time every day and make it the same one. One of them happens to be journaling. So if journaling appeals to you, great. And there's a couple of interventions within journaling. I call it the morning downloads. Journaling is so powerful. You know, when you're in bed at night, your brain, your subconscious mind is processing all kinds of things. Now, you can think of it like this. You wake up in the morning and your mind is full of thoughts, anxieties, worries. Now, if you don't process that and you go straight into your day, they can start influencing your behavior for the whole day. They can actually stay within you. They can make you stress. They can make you shout at your kids, have a row with your partner because you haven't processed it. So a simple practice of just five minutes where you literally download the thoughts out of your mind onto paper can be transformative. You can feel calmer, happier. If people have got a job where it requires creativity, it can make you more creative. If people are skeptical, I would encourage you for seven days, just try it. First thing in the morning, with a paper and pen, write down anything for five minutes. And this can get stressful for people. Initially, they think, oh, what am I going to write? doesn't matter. Nobody's going to look at it. Anything you want. It could be the weather. It could be just the most bizarre, off-the-wall thought. It doesn't matter. But when I do this consistently it literally changes the fabric of my day. Exactly the same. And it's it, changed, such a, it changed my life, that practice. It doesn't cost pages. money, yeah. right? It doesn't cost money. And this is, I'm so keen in all my books, and particularly in this one, that pretty much everything is None free. None of it costs money. None it? of it costs money, no. right? I'm tired of hearing that wellness and looking after your health is to preserve the middle classes. I get why people say that, right? But I'm trying to show people, it doesn't matter whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're a single mum on benefits, right? You can still have access to these health interventions. Now, I don't want to take the mickey here. I get it. If you're a single mom on benefits, there are certain pressures in your life. I totally get that will be different from, let's say, if you've got a nice big fat bank account. I totally get that. But having worked in Oldham, in a very deprived area in North Manchester, a very deprived area where that practice served for seven years, I can tell you that even if you've got high stress and high pressures in your life, Doing these recommendations, doing five minutes of journaling in the morning, it's going to help you be more resilient. You are going to be able to deal with those stresses a lot better. So journaling is just one of them. Now, one of them is, I call it download because you're downloading it from your brain onto paper. It sounds like metaphorical, but you're literally taking the thoughts out of your brain and putting them on paper. You're clearing your mind. There are more structured options that people don't want actually to just free form for five minutes, there are five questions they can answer. You know, so what I've tried to do is give people options. So there's almost no excuse not to choose one. There is absolutely a recommendation in there for your mind that is going to work for you. It's a case of choosing the right one. And you like journaling, right? You said you really like it. Now, some people will hear that and go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to give that a go. I reckon that's going to work for me. Other people will be listening and they'll be thinking, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure it doesn't sound right to me. Now, we could approach that two ways. You could say, give it a go for five days and see how you feel, which I would encourage people to do. But if it really doesn't resonate with you, I say, don't do it, right? Pick something else. To make any behavior stick in the long term, it's got to be something you want to do. If you don't want to do it, 
Once a novelty wears off, you will stop doing it. It's like we know with sport or with working out, choose an activity that you like. If you don't like it, you ain't going to be doing it. But that's interesting because I used to hate meditation. And yeah. now I literally, if I don't do it, I feel bonkers. Yeah. So that's a really interesting one because sometimes when we first start something, the resistance can really come up. I agree. It? What does that teach us? It teaches us that there's no one right approach for everyone, yeah. right? Everyone responds differently. I guess with respect to feel better in five, what I tried really hard to do as I was writing it is think about, okay, what if someone doesn't like this, doesn't speak to them? Okay, what's a completely different intervention yeah. that might appeal to them? So I kept hammering this home in the book that, look, there are all these wonderful things that take five minutes that you could do. There's like 50. We don't have time for 50 five-minute interventions every day, right? That becomes ridiculous, right? And I said, all you need to choose is three. Yeah. That is it. Once you've chosen your three, put the book down, put it on the shelf and just focus on doing those three things for five minutes, five days a week. I'm even giving people the weekends off, right? I'm saying, give me five minutes of your time, three times a day, five days a week. Tell us about some of the changes. I just want to talk about one, which is in heart around resentment because the case study, I just was like punching the air because resentments is something that I teach wow. and talk a lot about. So can you tell us about the woman that came to you and your five minute resentment practice and how life changed for her? Was this a lady with the high blood pressure? Yes. Yeah. You know, when we think about health, everyone's thinking about their diet or working out. And of course, these things are really important, but our sleep quality, our stress levels, they're important as well. But then going beyond that, these emotions that we carry around with us that we haven't processed. It's like baggage that just weighs us down and letting go of these emotions, no matter how hard they can be, can be utterly transformative. And it's the thing that I don't think gets spoken about enough when it comes to health. I totally agree. And it determines and dictates so much of what we do. There's so many case studies in That's the book. That's so got... great. You've got a heart section, isn't it? Yeah, and I remember when I was kind of sat down to write it, trying to come up with a framework for the book, trying to think about all my patients, trying to think about the case studies that I've experienced. I was thinking, you know, how can I encompass that third section? And mm -hmm. when I thought, heart, yeah, heart, that sounds kind of, I like that heart's quite, I felt like quite an original way to talk yeah, about this area. Because most people would have called it emotions, yeah. which a lot of us go, oh, I don't want to go there. Yeah, and I thought <laughs> heart is something that I think we can all relate to. And I sort of, there's a little play on words there that as a doctor, I learned about the heart. I learned about the blood vessels in the heart and how we need to pump our blood around the body. But heart's got another meaning, hasn't it? Mm. Heart's got a much deeper meaning mm. that we've been talking about for years. That artists have been waxing lyrical about, you know, the power of the heart. And we all know that how good we feel. So ultimately there are some practices in the books. Again, five minutes maximum is how long these things take to help you let go of resentment. And I think this was a lady, I think, who had had high blood pressure for a long yep. period of time. Yeah, years, like 10 years. I think. Years, and we tried all kinds of things. I, As always, I always look at people's lifestyle. I tried to help her with a diet, with her working out regime. And again, nothing would really stick. And I was finding it a bit of a struggle. I couldn't really connect with her in a way that actually she would engage with those behaviours. And it became quite clear to me after a while that actually she was always quite on edge. She was always looking at the negative of things. This is an observation as a clinician. This is not a judgment on her as a person. This is just an observation. I noticed this enough times. I started to probe a bit deeper. It was quite clear, actually, that actually she had split up with her ex-husband and was still holding on to a lot of resentment over what had happened. Understandably, there was a lot of things that had happened there, and I totally get that. But 
over a period of time, I started to sow the seed in her head that actually maybe holding on to this resentment wasn't doing her any good. And actually by her starting to let go of that, she wasn't doing it for her ex-husband. She's doing it for herself. I can't remember who said it, but the saying, not forgiving someone, holding on to resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Yeah. I don't know who said it, but it absolutely hits the nail on the head. You're not doing it for you, but you're doing it for yourself. Now, every case is individual. Some people need to see therapists. There's a lot of inner work that they have to do. But for many people, just simply being aware of it and starting a five-minute practice every day where you answer these four or five questions, you literally just go down and answer these questions and you try and go back to it every day where you connect with that emotion, try and feel where does that come up in your body. For me, I know when I feel when something's stressing me out, I'm sort of holding on to something. I feel it in my upper right back. Mm. Five years ago, I didn't have a clue. I, I didn't know that I'd feel it in my body somewhere. But as part of this work, it's kind of like, oh, I'm aware now. I'm aware that I hold it in my upper right back. Awareness is the key to change. Once you're aware, then you'll start noticing it in other aspects of your life. You'll notice, yeah, why does my friend always say that when I'm on Facebook? Why do they always make a snidey comment about my photo? Oh yeah, actually, you know what? I'm feeling that in my right neck okay, something's triggered me. So I know this all sounds quite out there, but... Not to my listeners. We're yeah, I hope not, because <laughs> I think this stuff, the heart section, although it's the final section of the book, I mm. put in the introductions that section, mm. this may sound a bit woo-woo. This may sound to you as though it's the least important, but I can say this is the most important section in the book. You get this stuff right, it will have so many knock-on effects on the rest of your health. And again, going back to what we said about 10 minutes ago, we don't have time anymore. We don't have time for this connection. Now, yes, in the heart section, you can do that resentment exercise if that feels appropriate to you, right? But if not, there's one called phone a friend, mm-hmm. right? I love that one. It's like this whole idea that we're so busy doing what we need to do. We forget about the things that we like doing and we love doing. And not being connected to our friends is hugely toxic to our health. The feeling of being lonely is as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Now, that's incredible. Whenever I say that stat in a talk, I ask people, are you surprised? And literally everyone puts their hand up. Yeah, Yeah. well, how could that be? Well, everything makes sense when you go back and understand what your stress response is. So two million years ago, let's say we were in our hunter-gatherer tribes in our tightly knit communities. Let's say you were not part of that tribe. Let's say you were excluded from that tribe. Your body's very clever. Your body knows that you are vulnerable to attack. So it prepares you for that. So what does it do? It ramps up your stress response. It makes you inflamed. It makes your immune system go into overdrive. All these things are going to help you if a predator like a lion comes and attacks you. Those strategies from the body are going to help you recover quickly. That's a brilliant thing. But fast forward to the modern world now, your body doesn't know the difference. So if you are not connected to your tribe, to your friends, many of us feel very, very isolated. Very, very isolated. Especially mums. Especially mums. You mums. We live on streets where we don't know anyone. Often it'll be, I speak to mums, they will be in the house on their own from seven till seven till someone gets home or... Yeah. In the stress response with a screaming baby. Yeah. And then the natural response to that is one o'clock. Yeah. Right? Because... They're stressed out. Yes. They're not maybe having adult contact in the day. Let's say their partner, if they have a partner, is out working. They don't get that sort of intellectual stimulation. And then you've got to do something. And then for many people, understandably, they'll then turn to 
one, two, three, maybe a bottle of wine in the evening to help them relieve that stress. Now that's fine, but once you understand where it's coming from, if you want to change that behavior, you've got to understand where it's coming from. And look, first thing I'll say, well, I'm a guy, right? So I don't want to come in here and talk about as if I know what it's like for busy months, but I'm a parent. I've seen what my wife has been through. As a doctor, a lot of my patients are women between the age of 30 and 55, and a lot of them are mums, right? And so I hear firsthand and I see and I talk to people about what some of these experiences are and how people are feeling. And I get it because we're no longer living in our tribes and our communities. Many of us have moved away from where we grew up for work, right? We've never raised children, just two people. If you're lucky enough to have a partner, right? Many people Don't. don't. Even if there's two of you and you've got your kids, We've never, ever in history just had two people raising children. Mm-hmm. Yet that's the norm these days. I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with my friend Drew a couple of weeks ago on friendship. Yes. We literally talked about how difficult it is now for people without their community and their tribe. And it's a huge, huge problem. And so I think for mums, often, yes, they want to eat well, but it's hard when they're tired and they're stressed out. Yeah, they want to sleep well, but they're always knackered because the kids aren't sleeping. They've got a million things to do. I totally get that. But I would say, take five minutes. That's why I'm so excited to share this with my... With I, think, my I think it's perfect for mums. it's perfect for mums. I was like, you almost could have written this for mums. Well, look, my <laughs> own experience as a person, as a doctor, but as a parent, you know, I've been a parent now for nine, nine and a half years. Where have they gone? Being a parent is a big part of my life. It's a major part of my life. Mm. And so that not to have influenced this book is impossible. Yes, I'm not as busy as my wife in terms of what happens with the kids. I'm a very hands-on dad, but because of my job, I'm away. I'm in London for two days at the moment, and that's fine. You know, we've got a system that works for us. Does she do this? She absolutely does. I mean, she helped edit it, and as she was editing it, she thought, oh, maybe I should do that. I'm like, yes, maybe you should do that (laughs) one. But as many of your listeners will know, Getting advice from your partner is probably not the best person to get advice from. Absolutely, you know? yes. So I can write all these books that hundreds of thousands of people are buying. Doesn't mean my wife's going to do any of it. But if she hears it from someone else, absolutely. That's a good idea. Maybe yeah. she'll listen to this and think, oh, actually. No, no, but that's what happens. And to be fair, I'd be the same. You know, you hear something, it goes in one ear and out through the other, but someone else tells you and you're like, hey, babe, if you heard this, this is a really good idea. But what is also great is that you link some of these to being a parent. So there's a section in Move about play and about how actually it's so easy for us to get that five minutes of activity running around the playground with our kids and then it's done. So, and we're present with them. It's so, like a double win, right? Absolutely. So look, we all know we should move more, right? That's not rocket science. That's not news to anyone. No. But the question is, why are we not moving more? Well, in our heads, we think we've got to go to the gym. Right, we think, oh, we have to go to the gym or do some expensive leggings or... Yeah, we've got to do something like proper working out. I'm like, hold on, who says? Well, play is very valuable. Play does so many things for your brain. But Mm -hmm. if you've got kids, and this is what I do because I don't go to the gym normally, I just don't have time. So what do I do? When the kids are home from school, if I'm home or just before dinner, we will play together for five minutes. Sometimes we'll put on a favourite CD, let's say, in the kitchen. Right, I'm a bit old school. I've got a CD player with no Wi-Fi connection on purpose in my kitchen because... It's still sell CDs. Do you know what? I bought it. They're my old CDs. I bought it four years ago. I went to the shop. I remember I was in the traffic centre in Manchester and I went in and I asked the guy, I said, I want the CD player. He goes, all these ones here have got Wi-Fi and you know you can connect your phone to it. I said, no, no, I want the one without Wi-Fi, without Bluetooth. 
He's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, he says, we do have a model. But I said, yeah, that's the one I want. Now, look, there are times when I think oh, it would might have been better. But what it does is that I'm not always fiddling with my phone. I'm not yeah. constantly trying to... I can just put a CD on from start to finish and have it on in the background. Anyway, I've got sidetracked. What I do with the kids is we'll put on a couple of tunes and we'll just dance oh, yeah. and have a laugh together in the kitchen. And you know what? They're smiling. I'm smiling. We're all a bit sweaty at the ends. Not always. Not only have we moved our bodies, got our heart pumping, right? But we've connected. Connected, yeah, exactly. Right? So we're busy now. Everyone says they don't have time for health. Really? Well, I bet you that every single person listening to this, and I'm going to make a supposition here that even the busiest mum listening to this, and again, of course, I may not be right in every case, has got five minutes in their day to dance. They might dance with their baby, right? You can dance with your kids. I would challenge people, five minutes a day, for the next five days, just do it and see how you feel. If you're not feeling any different, fine, go back to what you were doing before. If you are feeling different, then you've got a new tool now in your armory to use. Mm. And an extra tip I'd give you, and this goes to the whole piece on behavior change. So the program that I've written about, it's deceptively simple. What, five minutes, three times a day, what's that really gonna do, right? But I think not only is it the easiest health plan that people will do, I actually think it's gonna be one of the most effective ones because it's all based on behavior science. Now, there's many things you have to do to make a new behavior stick, but there's two really important ones that I'd love to share with your listeners. The first thing you gotta do is you gotta make it easy. So listen carefully to that, guys. If you're a busy mum, I don't know how old your kids are, you know, whether it's a young baby or when you've got kids at school, but you're always rushing around and you think you're going to have time to do that 40 minute yoga class on YouTube five days a week. You might do. And if you do, great. But most people I see don't have time to do that. And you're setting yourself up for failure. You've got to make it easy. That's why it's five minutes. Five minutes is enough. Well, we can all think, yeah, I've got five minutes. Now, next thing you've got to do is if you can do it in your house, if you can do it without getting changed, if you can do it without buying any equipment, you suddenly are lowering the bars to entry. Every time you have to do something extra before you do a new behavior, it's another reason to say no. I'm sure many of your listeners will shop on Amazon, right? Since Amazon moved to one-click ordering, their profits went up. I think $200 million, their profits are estimated to have gone up. Why? Because literally with one click, you've now ordered. Every time you have to pay a click, put in your card details, check it. That's three or four steps. Every time there's an extra step, it's a reason to not go ahead with that behavior. It's friction into it's the process. friction. So remove the friction, yeah. right? So make it easy. Five minutes. Even if five minutes sounds too much, do one minute. Even one minute will make a difference. Yeah. But the second thing you've got to do, right? And this is so, so important if you want this behavior to stick. You've got to stick it on to an existing behavior that you've got. And why is that important? Over 50% of what any of us do in any given day, it's not conscious thought, it's habit. Right? We're doing it without we're even thinking about it. The way you make a new behavior stick is that you stick it on to an existing habit that you already have. For example, many of us will put the kettle on first thing in the morning. I know I do. I used to have a bit of a coffee problem. And so I used to weigh out my coffee and I'd put the timer on for four minutes. And in that four minute interval, I would do a workout for four minutes. Suddenly, I didn't have to find extra time in my day. Every day, I was never going to miss my coffee. That meant every day I got a four-minute workout in. Literally, for years, that's what I did. I wouldn't go to the gym. I did four minutes every single morning, seven days a week. And I didn't have to find extra time, right? Because I stuck it on. For someone else, it might be if it's a working man when they come home from work. Maybe the first thing you do, maybe actually you put 
Again, I'm not saying you have to get dressed to do your workout, but maybe you put your yoga clothes on your bed. When I come home from work, if I've been in clinic seeing patients, first thing I do when I come home is I get out of my shirt and trousers and put on some jogger bottoms and a t-shirt. So if that's the first thing you do, maybe at that point, as soon as you get changed, you do your five-minute workouts or you do a five-minute yoga sequence. And there's two or three five-minute yoga sequences that I've created for people in the book. They're great. Right? It's just simple stuff. Skipping. I'm trying to think outside the box. Skipping is fun. Many of us did that as kids. Right? Skipping is so fun. It's fun. It gets your yeah. heart pumping. And yeah. I say, okay, maybe you hang your skipping rope in the porch. So every time you're walking in through the front door, the first thing you see is your skipping rope. That's a trigger for you to do that behavior. You know, if you want to do that morning download, that journaling we spoke about, you want to do it first thing in the morning. Well, do you know what? Make sure in your kitchen, if you're going to do it while you have a cup of tea, let's say, make sure there's a journal and a pen yeah. by your kettle. So when you come down in the morning, you're not having to go, oh, where is that? Is it in the cupboard? Is it my work rucksack? And then you're onto something else. And it's I, before you know it, it's like Amazon one-click ordering. You're not going to do the behavior. If you want to do a gratitude journal or even that morning download in the morning, you know what? Most of us have got a bedside table. Get a piece of paper or even better, a little notepad that you really like the look of and a pen or a pencil. Make it live there on your bedside table. That means every night when you come to bed, you're triggered. You're not having to find time in your day. You're being visually triggered. These are the little tricks, right, that help create these new behaviors. And if you think willpower is enough, then you're going to remember every day you ain't. Some of you will, right? But they're very, very rare. You know, I don't mean to go over the top on this, but genuinely, in nearly 20 years of clinical practice, I have seen over and over again, when you set the bar low, when you keep it to five minutes or less, people start doing it. They feel good about themselves. And then it's steaming because you're like, I'm doing it. And then you might increase it. And then you might, it's the ripple effect you talk it, about. It's the ripple effect. You might try something else. You might try something The hidden secret of this plan is actually, it's not about five minutes. It is about five minutes. But actually when you get good at this, when you get really good at doing your five minutes every day, before you know it, that five minutes will turn into 10. That 10 will turn into 15. Instead of doing it five days a week, you'll actually do it on Saturday and Sunday as well. Why? Because you feel great when you do it. Yeah, I see this with my clients. So my clients, when they start working with me on my coaching program, I invite them to meditate. But I limit them to one minute for two weeks. I love that. And they all say, no, it's too easy. There's no point. It's not going to change. And I don't care how many years you've been meditating. I don't care how many retreats you've been on. You do one minute. And invariably, everyone achieves it. Everyone feels good. And then they're gagging at the end of two weeks. They're like, can I increase it? Can I increase I'll it? That. I mean, I'm so happy <laughs> when I meet people. We've got very similar philosophies. Yeah. I, because I, it works. Because I've seen, you've seen it work. You know, you've had far more experience than me. But I've seen it work. It works. Every January, we can have all these new year new books out. We can have all these programs coming out. All the information in them, generally speaking, is probably very good. But what actually works in real life? What do people actually do? That's what I'm interested in as a doctor. A classic example of this was six or seven years ago in my clinic. And this was a 42-year-old chap, actually. And he was a little bit overweight, low energy, mood issues. There's a few things going on with him. But one of the things that we agreed would be useful for him was to do some strength training. And he was like, yeah, okay, doc, you've convinced me. I told him about the research and what it does for your brain, for your mood. And he's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what happens? He goes, doc, right, I'm in. I'm going to do this. So what do I need to do? 45 minutes, three times a week? I said, hey, if you can do that, that would be amazing. So what happens? He goes away full of motivation and willpower. You know, he's skipping out the door thinking I'm going to yeah, do yeah. this. One month later, I've got a follow-up with him. He comes in to see me. I said, hey, how are you getting on? You know, how did you get on in the gym? He looked guilty. 
is that, you know, I've not managed to go yet. Work's been really busy. The gym's quite far from work. It hadn't it's, been once. It hadn't been once. No, it's quite expensive. I'm really sorry. That was one of the most life-changing consultations for me because I never thought, why has he not done what I've asked him to do? I thought, Rongan, you've clearly not given him advice that he feels is relevant in the context of his life. And in that moment, I remember I took my jacket off and said, right, I'm going to teach you a workout right now. I'm going to teach you a strength workout. It's going to take you five minutes. You don't need to buy any equipment. You don't need to join any gym. You don't even need to get changed. And that particular workout was in my first book, The Five-Minute Kitchen Workout. And there's many variations of that in this book. I literally taught him this five-minute workout and said, right, I want you to do this twice a week in your kitchen. He's like, what? Twice a week? Like 10 minutes a week? He said, yeah, that's all I want you to do. Can you manage that? He says, yeah, easy, no problem. I said, okay, that's all I want you to do. So he goes away thinking, instead of doing 45 minutes three times a week in the gym, all this doctor's asked him to do is 10 minutes a week. He goes out, again, he comes back in a month. I said, how are you getting on? He goes, oh my God, doc, I love it. I started off doing it twice a week, like you said, but I really like it. I now do it for 10 minutes every day before my evening meal. So this guy, by me asking him to do 10 minutes a week, He's now doing 70 minutes of strength training every single week, not because I told him to, because he wants to. And that's the difference, right? I made it easy for him. I made it applicable for him. He started doing it. I set the bar really low. What happens? You set the bar low, people start doing it. They feel good about themselves. Instead of him being the guy who came back to see me with shrunken shoulders going, oh, dogs haven't done it. He's coming in with his chest puffed out because... His identity starts to change now. He now, instead of being the sort of person who can't stick to creating new behaviours, he's the kind of person now who can make new behaviours. This is the skill of habit change or behaviour change. It's actually identity change. When you keep the bar low, people start doing it. They feel good about themselves on a deep emotional level. You really start to feel good. I have seen this over and over again. Don't get me wrong. I've got many patients who will go on the one month plan with a personal trainer or they'll buy the latest book and do it and they'll feel great. Unfortunately, most of them six months later, they've all reverted back, right? So as I say, I'm always looking as a clinician, as a doctor, how can I help this person make change? Yes, it's going to make them feel good in the short term, but it's also going to help them in the long term. And I found that this is the most powerful way to do it. Not only is this what my clinical experience says, as you saw recently, I was in LA about a month ago promoting my second book on stress in America. I did a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews, but I also went on BJ Fogg, who I mentioned at the start of this interview, the world leader in human behavior. He very kindly invited me to his two-day boot camp, which I always wanted to go on. So I flew up for two days with 10 other people. We did his immersive boot camp. And me and BJ got on like a house on fire and I told him about the things that I do with my patients and I showed him what was in this book. And he said, Rongan, I absolutely love it. The reason this book is going to work, the reason why this is actually going to change people's lives is because everything you've recommended literally is supported by my 20 years of research. And what we loved about it, he's been studying the research for 20 years, yeah. right? And you've been in the field. I've been in the field trying yeah. to figure out why did my patients not do what I've asked them to do? And we've merged into the same place. And it was so gratifying. This was literally four to six weeks ago, actually, when I was sitting there and I was thinking, because I'd already submitted the book. The book was already being printed. Yeah. So I'd already done it. The last thing I wanted was him to go, well, this isn't quite right. No, well, I'm very confident in what I've written because I've experienced it. But he goes, no, it's all totally backed up what my research says. And so that's why I'm so excited. You've got busy mums listening to this. One of my mates is, uh, how old is he? 42. 
I won't mention his name in case tomorrow's wife are listening, although I should probably embarrass him. But he's a really good mate of mine. I taught him this five minute, what I call the classic five workout, which is the first strength workout in the book. It's what I think is the best five bodyweight exercises that you can do that require no equipment and it can be modified for all ability levels. And I saw him on the beach this summer, him and his wife and his kids having a weekend in Devon. And I saw his body and I said, mate, what have you been doing? You know, you look completely ripped. He's like, mate, I'm not kidding you. All I've been doing is your five minute workout. I've been doing it every day just before I leave work five minutes of body weight and literally I've known this guy since Freshers Week when I was at uni he knows my philosophy he knows all this stuff it's like I had no idea the impact it was going to have it's doing these small things regularly as I say get really good at doing the small things and the big things take care of themselves well and what I just love about you is your passion it's palpable (laughs) I just feel like I want everyone to get this book I want everyone to try it out because it has the potential to change lives and our children's lives because they're watching they're watching they're watching and there's loads in here about what we can do with our children we don't have time to go into it but I'm going to ask you the final question which is the same I haven't told you I'm going to ask you this because I know you like to do things in flow I don't do things in flow so I'm I'm going to try and be (laughs) present for whatever you're about to ask me question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast is if you could give just one gift to all the mums in the whole world what would that one gift be and why wow that is a brilliant question a gift like a physical gift or anything anything? some people say time some people say a feeling some people say a tool and it can be anything the gift I would give to every mum in this world is permission to relax I'm a doctor I've seen tens of thousands of patients in my career And the one thing that keeps coming up over and over again is that people, particularly mums, who are so busy a lot of the time doing things for other people, rushing around doing things for their partner, for their children, for their parents, they don't give themselves time. A lot of my patients have come back to me and said, doctor, thank you for that. What you've done is given me permission to relax. And as a doctor, I never felt it's my job to give anyone else permission. But I've realized that many people need that permission. So if you are a mother listening to this podcast and you're busy and you're tired and you're stressed, please, the best thing you can do today is give yourself five minutes, five minutes to yourself to do whatever you want. Five minutes to sit there and have a cup of tea or coffee uninterrupted. Five minutes to ask someone to watch your kids while you just go for a five or 10 minute walk around the block. Five minutes for you, not for your partner, not for your kids, five minutes for you. That's probably the biggest gift that I could give any mother. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about, then just tag them in on Instagram. My bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there. People often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends. So if that's you, then please do. I feel like the guests that we have on the podcast, their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide. So help me make that happen. I'd be very grateful. And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme. 
which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.